Today, we are travelling to Brisbane to visit Oxley Creek. This creek is known as Benaroa in the Yugara language. I would like to pay my respect to elders past and present and acknowledge all traditional owners of the country that Brisbane, known as Mianjin, is on. Welcome to Weekend Birder. I'm your host, Kirsty Costa. Friends, I'm so chuffed to have Hugh Possingham join us for this episode. This remarkable leader, scientist and mathematician is also a passionate birdwatcher. Here is how it all began for Hugh. My father was a birdwatcher, although he was an engineer, he went to England for a while. And of course, there's so many birdwatchers in the United Kingdom. And they started birdwatching there. He came back and he would take my brother and I birdwatching. And to be honest, for a long time, we didn't really like it that much, wandering through the South Australian deserts, um, looking for small brown birds, and it was 35 degrees Celsius. And in fact, often he would leave me with my toy soldiers to fight the ants for four or five hours under a shady bush as he wandered off. And I don't think we do that as parents anymore, but it was fine to leave your eight-year-old under a bush for five hours in the day. In the end, I sort of thought, well, this isn't going to work. So we started bird watching, both my brother and I, and been me bird watching ever since. And, um, and I suppose like everything, well, I think it was Spike Milligan once said, the only incurable disease is bird watching. Uh, he's never heard of anybody reforming. So, you know, be careful, you'll never get rid of it because once you do it, it just grows and grows. Hugh's family's favourite birdwatching spot was bulldozed in 1978. He was only 16 years old at the time. Since then, Hugh has devoted his life to stopping habitat loss around the world. He completed a PhD in mathematics and ecology at Oxford University in the UK, and this led to a career in universities in the USA and then back in Australia. Hugh has mainly worked as a university professor and is currently at the University of Queensland. He also served two years as Chief Scientist of Queensland and four years as Chief Scientist of the Nature Conservancy. Hugh has had over 1,000 peer-reviewed scientific publications and his list of achievements goes on and on. Amongst all of this, he still likes to get out two to three times a week to go birding and one of his favourite places to go birding in Brisbane is Oxley Creek Common and that's what Hugh is going to tell us about today. It's in the suburbs of Brisbane, just maybe eight kilometres south of the centre of the city, and it's only a um, five-minute bicycle ride from my house. It's about 100 hectares, and in fact, it was a Department of Primary Industries research farm. When we first arrived in Brisbane in 2000, it was full of cattle. In fact, it was pretty well grazed within an inch of its life. It was often just dirt. There's 100 hectares in the middle of the suburbs on the edge of Oxley Creek, which is a creek in very poor condition. It's mangrove lined. It's called an F-rated creek in the Healthy Land and Water Rating Scheme, which F is not for fabulous, F is for staffed. So in some senses, it looks really bad. And around 2002, the Department of Primary Industries decided they didn't need these research farms anymore like this. So they, without really telling anybody, made it into a public park. And a few of us sort of found it, and they found a little trail system, and we started going there. And lo and behold, you know, almost 25 years later, we have a bird list on eBird, over five and a half thousand visits of 224 different species. Now, 224 different species for a piece of land that is almost completely unnatural. There have been some plantings, vegetation's recovered a bit, but basically it's full of weeds, it's messy, it's not at all natural habit in any way. 
That's a quarter of all the bird species in the continent. And you can see them in a five-minute bicycle ride from my house. I used to go there a bit and we started finding odd and interesting birds. It's a fairly open space. So, for example, we've had 19 species of bird of prey there. If you keep looking up, you never know what's going to fly over. Regularly, there's nice birds like black-shouldered kite and brown falcon, and even occasionally wedge-tailed eagles, white-bellied seagulls. These are things that you don't often see in the suburbs. And it's because it's a big area of open grassland. Nearby State School has an ag program and they continue to graze some cattle there, which is actually good in this case. They're not grazing it down to the dirt. There's a lot of grass and there's a lot of casuarinas and forest red gums coming up. But that grazing, I think, is actually very important. Because, again, if you look at a Google map of Brisbane and you look for big open spaces, this is one of the only one or two places, and the other ones are airports. So it's that openness. There's some wetlands in there, so we can have things like black-necked stork and magpie geese. There was a freckled duck turned up, chicanas, or, or often people call them um, lily trotters. Odd things keep turning up. And then in 2004, I decided, well, it'll be interesting to see how this site changes through time. There's a friends group, and I'm, I'm the president of the friends group, and we do a lot of weeding, we do a lot of planting along the track, um, we put in seats and signs and stuff. And so in 2004, I thought, well, you know, I should practice what I preach as a scientist, although I'm more of a mathematician and a modeler, you know, let's get some data on this place. And so I started doing a 100-minute bicycle ride through the site, and I've been doing it for 20 years, once a month, every month for 20 years. There was a bit of a gap when I was overseas for four or five years. So what I find is fascinating just to see first the seasonal changes I didn't expect. So there's common birds like brown honeyeater. You think, well, there's always brown honeyeaters there. But in fact, if you start counting them properly, the actual numbers, and you do it regularly, you realise in the middle of winter there's 100 and in the middle of summer there's 15. Those seasonal patterns slowly reveal themselves through time. So we have a lot of winter visitors, all those birds that find Victoria way too cold uh, and sensibly move to Queensland in winter, like we get your grey fantails come up and your silver eyes, golden whistlers, you know, the grey fantails t- turn up and then there's 10 of them, 12 of them on my census and then in the summer there's basically none. And I think in Australia we tend to think, oh, well, there isn't a lot of change from month to month. That's what happens in Europe. But in fact, so many things are happening from month to month. And you only learn that by going out month after month. And the other odd thing was also not just the seasonal patterns, which are somewhat expected, is the year-to-year variation. So there's a lot in the waterbirds. So at the moment, the waterbirds are very poor because all the waterbirds are sitting in the middle of New South Wales and Queensland making merry as there's so much flooding out there. But when we had the millennial drought, we had so many interesting waterbirds turn up. We had inland waterbirds like yellow-billed spoonbills and red-kneed dotterels readily turn up because basically they're desperate and they're pushed out of the centre of the continent and they all flock to the coast. Seeing those long-term changes... And some are climatic changes, cyclical patterns of droughts and rains. But then there's also long-term increases and decreases and changes because of the habitat being changed. As Hugh watched the changes in the bird population in Oxley Creek over time, he also became fascinated with the changes in bird watchers themselves. I started recording the number of bird watchers and counting them, not just the number of birds. Early on, there were hardly any bird watchers. Nobody knew about the site. So we started posting things in eBirds and putting things up on Facebook and we formed the friends group. More and more people came. So early on, on average, it was literally one bird watcher every two visits. Now on average, I'm getting 12 to 13 bird watchers. So it's gone 25 fold up. And I started recording them, you know, are they alone or are they in couples? Have they got binoculars or camera? And so that has also changed a lot. So in the early days, 20 years ago, 
70, 80% had binoculars. There were very few cameras. Now it's about 70% cameras. So there's more and more people bird watching, I think, because they're using their cameras. So it's just interesting to see the changes in the way bird watching is happening and the increase in the number of bird watchers. Pre COVID, we were getting people from all over the world. You can go out in a good morning, find 75 bird species in a morning in three hours, just wandering around this degraded site in the middle of suburbia. In his spare time, Hugh leads a lot of community walks at Oxley Creek Common, and a bird that a lot of people come to see is the mistletoe bird. This species is also one of Hugh's favourites. Firstly, they're bright red. Chest is red. They're tiny, and so and they hang around often in the mistletoe in the canopy. So mistletoes are those parasitic plants that feed off eucalypts and casuarinas and other bushes, and they basically extract all their nutrients and water from the tree. Mistletoe birds tend to be in the mistletoe. The males are the ones with the bright red on their chest. The females are pale on the chest and, and a, a grey on the back. And the only red they have is a tiny bit of a wash of orangey red on their vent or their lower belly. They're just as cute and just as important. Officially, you might think they look a bit like a scarlet robin or maybe a rose robin. They are much smaller. They hang around in the canopy and they quickly dart from place to place and they have a very distinctive jip call. And that's that jip call or jujip call which actually tells me where they are first. And there's 30 people and they all want to see a mistletoe bird. Firstly, because I tell them about how the mistletoe birds disperse the mistletoe fruits. They eat the fruit and they're the only bird that wipes its bottom on a branch. Most birds... They eat some fruit, they digest the fruit, they poop out the seed and it just drops where they defecate. I think they like to poop just before they fly up. Mistletoe birds, in fact, wipe their bottom on branches. So effectively, they're planting this sticky seed on the branch. And their gut passage time, or their time it takes between eating and pooping, is only literally 15 minutes. So often they're dispersing these seeds reasonably close, within 100 or 200 metres of their parent plant. Imagine having dinner parties if gut passage time was 15 minutes. You have to have lots of toilets and you have to space your courses very carefully. And, and mistletoe berries, and I don't want to encourage too many people to eat them because the mistletoe berries are there for the bird. You can eat most of them and they are incredibly powerful laxative. So if you do suddenly find some juicy red mistletoes and start feasting on them, make sure you know where the nearest toilet block is. I would have thought that this complicated mutualism between mistletoe birds, mistletoe and the trees and the fruits and the flowers would have disintegrated in a suburban environment. It's actually reconstructing. We even have two mistletoe species that only live on other mistletoes. So they can't live on a plant, a tree or a bush. They have to live on another mistletoe. There's specialised butterflies that live on the mistletoe. And the mistletoe produces fruit and flower when lots of other things are not in fruit and flower. So the mistletoe bird really is an ecosystem engineer. It's, it's helping reconstruct this entire ecosystem. Dave Watson, who's at Charles Sturt University, has written many papers about the importance of mistletoe and mistletoe birds for restoring habitat in, in these sorts of disturbed ecosystems. Anyway, it's, it's a beautiful bird, best heard rather than seen because it is so tiny. The fact that I can tell it's cool means that I pick up, there's usually half a dozen at the site really quickly, and and if we're really lucky, they'll sit on a dead branch and we'll get a good look at them. His description of a mistletoe bird wiping its bottom on a branch will stay with me for a long time to come. I love that phrase, ecosystem engineer. It reminds me of what Alex Maisie was telling us about the superb lyrebird in episode 16. They are also ecosystem engineers as they turn over tons of soil and in the process they move around the plants and the other living things that can be found on the forest floor. 
Hugh says there are many benefits to returning to the same place time and time again to birdwatch and record data, including getting to know where individuals and groups of birds are living. At Oxley Creek Common, there used to be two pairs of mangrove jerigony. Jerigonies are small grey birds. I, I love mangrove jerigonies because they've got a habitat in their name and they always stick to mangroves. There was a pair by the canoe pontoon and there was a pair down by the gauging station. They have a very iconic call, a, a lilting, sort of trilling, wafty call. Very hard to see. They're just small and grey. You hear them and you know they're there. People coming along, you can say, you know, they say, I want to find a mangrove jerigony. Now, if they don't know their call, they're going to struggle because it's a tiny, small grey bird in the dense mangroves. Play them the call and I say, you can go to here, the canoe pontoon. You can go here to the gauging station. If you wait and listen, you'll eventually hear a mangrove jerigony and then if you're lucky, you'll be able to track it down. These individual family groups stay in the same places. The sad thing about that, of course, is when they disappear. So we're down to only one mangrove jerigony. We don't, I don't think there's even a pair left. So one of the pairs has completely disappeared and the other pair is down to a single individual. The downside with getting to know these birds really, really well, of course, is the sadness of them disappearing as pairs. Even though these numbers I'm talking about going from four to two to one, they're not huge numbers of birds, but it's somewhat indicative of what's happening to some of our woodland birds and some of our flycatchers and things like really ragtails. And if you don't actually keep going back to the same place, you'll never notice difference. Hugh's love of scientific observation and the recording of numbers and data came from his father who was an engineer. My father always taught me to record everything and even in the day when we first bird watched it was common for people to make lists. He got us counting every bird so I've always counted everything. Of course the rise of both eBird and bird data means now you can enter all those lists onto your iPhone. So I've always been very focused on counting everything, making the best possible estimate of the birds I can get. Because if you don't do those counts, you'll never actually see those subtle changes. If I just put down X for willy wagtail, the Xs wouldn't have changed because there's still a willy wagtail there. If I wasn't going 444 and then 222 and 111... You would never pick up those changes. So I do encourage people to use bird data and eBird. It doesn't really matter which one you use. But the other thing I, I suppose I like doing, I like running public bird walks. I probably run one a month for different catchment groups. Often those bird walks are 30 or 40 people. Some come with no binoculars. Most of them have never bird walked before, which is great. And they think they're going to see a lot of birds. And I sort of say, well, there's 30 of us. We're stomping around the grasslands and woodlands and forests. Uh, we'll scare most of the things away. But if, what we'll do is we'll keep close together. We'll go quickly to a spot and we're going to sit and wait and hope something turns up. And we're going to listen. And often, you know, things don't turn up. But there's always noise. There's, Australia's so good because birds call all year, all the time, even in these suburbs. So I go to my first spot at Oxley Common and say, well, we can hear some birds. What do you think they are? So, well, there's a fig bird, there's a magpie lark, there's an oriole, there's a lewin's honey eater, a machine gun bird, choo-choo-choo-choo-choo-choo-choo. We talk about the bird calls and people start realising that they actually do know a few bird calls. They know kookaburras, they know magpies. Some of them know the coel, which you know up here is very common. I think it started to invade Victoria and even wandered a little bit through into Adelaide. I remind them that 500 years ago, Indigenous people were all bird watchers. Not that I'm an expert on this. If you look at some of the local Indigenous groups and 
you look at the names of things they've recorded, well, it's often a bird, and almost all the birds are named onomatopoeically. That is, they're named after the call of the bird. We call coels because they go cooey, cooey all night and drive people crazy. The indigenous people here, the Aravantubal people, called it Tuwong, and now there's a suburb here called Tuwong. So the suburb of Tuwong was named after the indigenous name for the coel. Of course, everybody called every bird onomatopoeically. We'd actually have no language problems at all, would we? We just call them all and you'd immediately know what the sound was. Listening to birds and naming them after their call was really quite deep in our psyche, I think. Often on these walks, as I say at Oxley Common, there's a big group of people, I'll get 75 or 80 species in the three-hour walk, 25 of them we never saw. We just heard somewhere in the distance. Listening to birds is one of Hugh's favourite things to do and he enjoys watching the people he's birdwatching with learn all about the birds around them without ever seeing them. Human beings are pretty visual animals. I mean, we're incredibly good at recognising thousands of visual images. So people look through their bird book, they see the birds, they can memorise them. And if they see them, they quickly find a pattern that matches them. We're pretty good patterning. I mean, the fact that they do it on those um, magazines where they just show the eyes of a movie star and just from the eyes, you can tell that's Clint Eastwood, given there's billions of eyes on the planet. That seems to me incredible. People then think they don't know anything about calls and say, oh, do you have to be good at music? I mean, in the end, it's just practice. It's just practice and it's just listening and thinking. So we are so visual. Well, we ignore our nose in almost entirely, but we are very visual. So we're so focused on the listening and the talking and the visual, just getting people to stop and just stand still for five minutes and just listen and hear all the sounds they're hearing. Most people have never stopped to listen. They just don't stop and listen to anything. And the fact there are all these calls and all of them are identifiable. I don't know about you, but I've learnt so much by listening to Hugh and other birdwatchers too. All those little tidbits of information really come in handy when we're out doing our thing. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us today, Hugh. Your tireless conservation work and the way that you involve people in birdwatching is really inspirational. Connect with Hugh on social media by visiting the episode notes or visiting weekendbirder.com. The bird recordings were shared by Mark Anderson on the Xenocanto website. Thanks, Mark. This website is such a great place for you to visit and learn about the songs of the birds that are all around you. Mm-hmm.